Today we learn how to increase our driving distance 100 feet quickly from the furthest throwing disc golfer in the world. Let's jump into it right now. What's up everybody? This is David Wiggins and you're listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. Welcome in everybody to the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast presented by Upper Park Disc Golf, the number one destination to get a new disc golf bag. They've got some of the highest quality materials in the game and they have some of the best bags that can fit any disc golfer's game right now. It doesn't matter if you're on the pro tour or if you're just starting today, they've got the best bag for you. Make sure you use promo code CLINKERS10 at checkout to save yourself 10% and support the brand. Today, we have the furthest throwing disc golfer of all time on the podcast. David Wiggins is joining us. David, how are we doing tonight, man? Man, super excited to talk to you. Doing great. Yeah. Excited to be on the podcast. Yeah. So let's just kind of jump right into how you first got into frisbee throwing and disc sports. What does your background in disc golf kind of look like? So um, when I was a little kid, about four years old, my parents moved into this neighborhood in North Carolina that happened to be pretty close to a disc golf course, pretty much walking distance. And my dad was exploring one day, found the course, and, uh, was like, hey, let me bring my little full of energy son around here so he can run out some energy and, you know, we'll sling some Frisbees in the meantime and kind of spiraled from there. We uh, started playing, you know, I was four years old. I was a little kid, got in at a young age, luckily, and uh, we stuck with it and upgraded our Frisbees to discs eventually and got involved with the local club. And it kind of took off from there once we started, you know, playing local doubles tournaments and you know, bag tags and kind of involved into going to regional events and eventually played my first world championships when I was nine years old. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Nine years old playing your first world championship. Were you more just thinking of like having fun at that point or were, did you have that competitive? Did you have that dog in you at that point? I've always been competitive as, as a little kid, but I mean, back then it was, it was a hundred percent just going out there and just having a good time for sure. I mean, uh, I, I definitely wanted to win, but I, I, I couldn't stay focused long enough to think yeah. about that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. So even at a young age at nine years old, were you still out throwing everybody or did you have a little bit more competition maybe then? Well, I set my first world distance record at nine years old an age protected one as well. And it was 343 feet. So I, as a little kid, I could still, still wow. get it out there pretty good. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Is that just being an athlete or did you have you always had really good form? Combination. Yeah. Um, I've always been always been athletic and you know, since I got started at such a young age, um, I had the time to develop pretty good form by the time I was, you know, even nine years old, how crazy it is to think. But um I had, you know, people giving me pointers at the local course and my dad would take me out to the field to throw once he found out that I was you know, in the in the running as far as how far I was throwing to maybe potentially um, give that distance record a run. It was, I think it was 277 feet when I, uh, wow. previous record. When I so you didn't just beat it. I mean, you absolutely crushed it. Yeah, I, I don't quote me on that, but it was, it was a pretty good margin. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I, did that just kind of fuel you even more? I mean, beating it, beating it by a lot. I mean, I, if I would, if I was in your shoes, I feel like I would just be amped. Like I'm going to be the furthest thrower disc golfer of all time. And I mean, you know, I didn't even know what it meant. I just really? love, and I knew even to this day, like I just love throwing the disc as far as I could possibly throw it. And just, I mean, 
I impress myself sometimes just watching the disc soar in the air. It's just such a cool feeling watching it fly like that. So that's always been like a driving motivation, just the pure enjoyment of seeing a disc fly like that. So that's awesome. And I really feel like that's a good way to get better at disc golf. If you almost look at it like that, right. You know, you're having fun, you have a passion for it. You just like seeing the discs fly. Whereas if you're like, okay, well, my nose weren't over my toes on this one. And I kind of lifted my nose angle a little bit. "Mm, I'm not a good disc golfer. Like, I feel like if you just have fun with it, you're leaning more on the side of being able to grow quicker without maybe having as much frustration did you kind of notice that in your own game like did it just continually almost like a snowball effect to continue to get better and better as you're just having fun and growing up yeah there was none of that like technical analysis of form for the most part back then we're talking I'm 27 now so that was almost 20 years ago which is crazy but you know you have these forms and YouTube channels and everything doing form critique and everything and back then you know, you really didn't see that as much. It was mainly just people going out there, having a good time and, and, you know, throwing, throwing what they got. Um, coming up, I really, there, there was no real form coach or anything like that, that I had. It was just, you know, go out, get the reps. What works, works, what doesn't change it and change it until it works and kind of develop your own thing. Because there's not a lot of people that have the 360 throw down out there in the world. I mean, there's a handful of people, so uh, it was kind of experimental, but just kind of figured it out along the way. Yeah. What were some of those things that you were experimenting with? Like, what were some things that were working for you early on? I always had a big run up and I always had a fast. And at the day, the faster that disc comes out of your hand, generally, the further it's going to fly as long as you have enough spin and uh, the right the right angle and height. So. I can I can attribute that to some of my success throwing distances that the speed I put into the disc with my uh, body and not just my arm. Mm. Is that part of the like 360 run up or is there something that maybe outside of the specific run uh, run up that kind of helps generate that? Oh, yeah, I would I would say it's the 360 run up. I'm basically sprinting and, you know, it's it's a very difficult athletic movement to do, especially with the spin. The more speed that you add to your run up, the harder it is to get the timing. So. It's, it's just something that's come after a, l- a lot of reps and years of years of perfecting it, really. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, you hear a lot of people say, you know, slow, smooth, smooth as far. But I've even kind of tinkered with it in my own game, and I find that sometimes, you know, the, the more velocity you have going into the throw, you're probably going to be able to get more on it, especially if you're using it correctly and you're bracing with that front leg instead of falling forward. Is that like – a timing obviously is important, but is that brace one of the more important factors to that in ensuring that that power is going through your body and it's not just lost momentum going forward? Huge part of it. Yeah. That, that brace in the plant is where the, the power and the speed is being transferred from your body into your arm right there. And it, it really is an athletic movement and it does put a good amount of strain on the, on the body, especially the lower body. But uh, it is definitely essential to, you know, throwing those crazy distances that you'll see the top pros throwing five, 600 feet, 700 feet. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. And so what are some things if I'm a newer disc golfer getting into the sport and, you know, I'm hearing bracing, like, could you maybe just give an overall like kind of what that means and what the proper brace would look like? Yeah, I I try to explain this at, at clinics and stuff. And really, you just want to think about your 
entire movement is just like an a athletic balanced movement with weight transfer at the right times. And you have to incorporate all those things. You want to have, you want to stay loose. You want to have a little bit of bend in your joints so you can, you know, have some spring to your step. Uh, you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be rigid. You don't want to lock any part of your body, hands, arms, legs, and it just needs to be as fluid and as, as smooth as possible. And when you add the speed, that becomes difficult to uh, incorporate the smoothness with the speed. So uh, I can definitely say that if you just tried to go out there and throw as hard as you can, and you know that you're probably not going to have a smooth throw with good timing, you're not going to add any distance. So it's a gradual, a gradual um, improvement to your form that you have to do to kind of see that improvement as you add the speed. And you might hurt yourself if you just go out there, you know, full throttle, trying to rip it as hard as you can. That's what I tell people too. Um, you got to, got to be cautious, especially, you know, when I was a kid, I could do whatever I wanted for the most part and I wouldn't hurt myself because I was athletic, but as I get older, um, you know, I, I stretch every time before I throw, I, I increase my power gradually and yeah, just gotta yeah. be cautious about it for the longevity of your game and everything. That is such a good shout. We talked to disc golf strong and Seth Muncy at the seeker showcase a couple of weeks ago. And that's kind of, he was echoing the exact same things during his clinic of, if you're going out to the course and just immediately throwing, you're going to hurt yourself, which will lead to you not being able to play as long. And you're, and you're probably going to hurt other parts of your game. I know I can attest to this myself when I first kind of was getting back into disc golf in that 2020 ish range. And, you know, actually taking it seriously this time and going to the field. I remember grabbing all the distance drivers in my bags. And probably at the time I was, didn't have a rating, but like for visualization, seven, 45 at best, maybe at the point mm -hmm. and shouldn't have had distance drivers in there, but <laughs> just absolutely very first throw, tried to put everything I had into it, had a huge pop in my hip and it took me a year and a half to be able to have any kind of resemblance of trust in my hip and it not to be hurting or sore. I think literally within the last six months, it's the first time I've played and it hasn't been sore. So Good. that's just, yeah. that's just a big shout to everybody. Please make sure you are stretching. If you're going to be going hard, you have to take care of your body or you're going to end up hurt. And so moving on a little bit from that, the other thing that you had mentioned a little bit earlier was spin, getting spin on the disc. Can you kind of describe maybe a couple of ways to generate spin during the throw? Yeah. So an interesting thing with spin is that we haven't completely, I guess, figured out the the right or numbers as far as like spin speed ratio goes for the, you know, any level of thrower. There's, I've heard that there's a device that can be used to put on the disc. To, I mean, I'm sure it's possible that we have the technology to track the revolutions of the disc now, but it just really hasn't been done. But it'd be cool to see the numbers, especially at the top level, because you'll hit the you know, further throwing players with a radar gun and we're, we're throwing slightly different speeds, but the overall distance of the throw might not be that significant. So um, the correlation between speed and spin definitely impacts um, the distance of the throw. And if you think about it, the more spin that you have on it, the more, uh, um, the more stable, the less, um, the less flex the disc is going to have because it has all this, inertia going around and it's going to keep it from losing energy as it flexes and you'll see that when you know you break a 
throw down into slow motion that the disc is kind of warping. So if you can save some of that in by putting more revolutions in it to stay flatter, you can probably improve some distance. Uh, as far as adding revolutions to your throw, that's really uh, coming down to the 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 hit that final release of the throw where your your wrist is really whipping through at the end. I try to keep my wrist and use it. You know, people will describe whipping a towel or something like that. I'm really when I hit that brace, my arm is coming through. I've done my acceleration, and rotate the end of my throw, and uh, that's how I that's how I do it. And, and um, you'll see a lot of players doing that as far as trying to get, you know, the most spin and speed on the disc that they can. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I look at somebody like Drew Gibson. I, I can't remember. It was a wooded course and just his buzz had stopped, you know, four or 500 feet up the fairway and yet was still spinning for three or four seconds on camera while, you know, and I was like, wow, that's crazy. I don't think I've ever had one of my discs do that even once. And so I really think that you're hitting the nail on the head here, that the spin is super critical to being able to uh, throw further. And that kind of makes sense. You know, you want to have the whip and and hit it like that. And so something that I, I was reading the article on your Instagram, the one that's in your, your, like your link on Instagram and just kind of looking mm -hmm. at some of your form in slow motion and, looking at the pictures and something that I know personally, I do a horrible job of, and maybe I'm not sure how to do it is when you have your reach back, it almost looks like your disc is in like extreme Anheuser or, uh, and maybe I'm just interpreting it wrong because I know when I'm going through my reach back, I feel as though my disc is like flat to on Heiser, but the more form uh -huh. I've been watching, it's almost as if it's coming through at the very back point in an Anheuser position, but because then there's more lean over at the end and coming through, it comes on, it comes through flat or with Heiser on it. Do you, do, does that kind of make any sense? Like, is that, is that something that can help get distance or control by having it more in that comfortable position instead of being super down and already having a Heiser angle at the very peak of your reach back? Honestly, that's something that I do subconsciously. And like I said uh -huh. previously, I developed my form off of, really feel what worked for me and what didn't going through it. Um, if you ask me right now, like you did, I don't know what the disc is doing when I'm fully reached back. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm coming across and it depends if I'm doing a 360 or not, because I feel like I tend to generate my power from more lower to up when I'm throwing a 360, just because of my release angles going to be at a little higher trajectory. So I might change that angle of the disc a little bit, but what I found is being really conscious of my, uh, balance during my throw is very important like you'll see me continue to rotate after i throw with my 360 and i'm in a like a, a squatting position almost low and then you know bring my arms in to my body and extend out trying to increase my uh rotational acceleration and everything so it, it just really boils down to what i found works for me um and, and what what feels natural throughout my throw and I guess wherever that position of the disc is when I'm all the way reached back is I'm comfortable with it now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about nose angle and, and pull through. 
where is, I guess the best question is how are you able to keep the nose down while still throwing on an upward trajectory? Is that just having that thumb pressure on the end of the disc that's keeping the nose down? Is there something else in your throw that you're doing? What, what is, that's a good question. You? Yeah. Um, that's a question I've been asked a lot. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not keeping the nose down. It's still coming out a little nose up, but I'm just able to overcome that with the speed and the spin of the disc. I'm, I'm, able to overpower it and, and getting it to turn over later in the flight. And it's just, I mean, when I was a kid watching people turn over discs, I was like, mind blown. Like, this is crazy. How, how is somebody throwing a disc on Heiser way out there? And it's turning over that late. I remember um, watching double G. I'm a little bit younger than him, but when I was a junior, he could throw a lot further than me and watching him flip a, a disc so late and he still does it. It's so impressive. But uh, yeah, it, it really, it's not so much as keeping the nose down as it is working with the disc that you have to make it fly to its maximum potential. So um, the further throwers, we can very overstable and make them do that. But uh, uh, a more novice player should pick a disc that will, uh, you know, favor their throwing abilities a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely should not be grabbing a destroyer or raider or Zeus or anything super dummy, high speed and overstable. That kind of makes sense because that's something I'm and I'm glad you explained it the way you did cuz cuz if you're throwing at the end of the day, if you're throwing the disc and it's going up, the nose has got to be up. Yeah, it has yeah. to. It's just physics. Yeah, that's so, that's what's bothered me this whole time of doing this show is, you know, people talk about nose down, nose down, nose down, but like at a certain point you run out of you run out of space to be able to have your disc fly if it's super nose down the whole way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So from what I'm understanding is it's okay to have some nose up and you really a good way of knowing if you were either too nose up or you didn't have enough spin is when you get it, when it just goes up and just kind of falls out of the air. Whereas maybe you see some turn or maybe it just continues and it has a nice hyzer finish instead of just falling out of the sky. That's a, more of a sign of, Hey, you, that's okay. You had nose up. You have to, if you want to throw further, but mm -hmm. you had some good spin there. Whereas if it just falls out of the air, you clearly didn't have enough spin. Yeah. And I think a problem that a lot of players have, especially in this level is they're changing the trajectory of the, they're changing that angle as they're, progression of the throw moves forward you really want to keep it on one plane the entire time when you're pulling the disc through that's that's where you, you know you'll see somebody throwing discs for the first time and it just it, it swings up because they'll dip their arm down at the end your your most athletic movement and your quickest movement is going to be that straight pull you know whether it be slightly up or straight across you want it to stay on that same plane the entire time you pull your arm through because once you start adding in other movements and changing the, you know, the angle of the nose later on in your throw, it's chances are not going to work out great. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I really feel like I, uh, you're hitting some points that I have not heard in a long time, or I've never heard before because that also makes sense. You know, I've got, I've got a buddy who have been really trying to get in and, and play more and, that's literally exactly what he'll be doing. He's frustrated. He's not being able to throw it as far as us. And, and, you know, there's been times where he'll pull out a distance driver. I'm like, well, guy, not for you. This is no, no sir. this is, <laughs> I, I understand that we threw a distance driver. We probably shouldn't have done that. You definitely should not be doing that. My good man. 
And it's, it's that also it's, it'll start down and then it'll be up and then it'll somehow be down or, or it'll be flat by the time that ends. It's not just a straight linear pull through. And that kind of makes me wonder, is there an optimal plane to pull through? Should you be down kind of going up? Should you be flat? Should you start it up higher? Like where's maybe the best way or best angle to be pulling through? I think that completely depends upon the player that you look at. Um, you can see even at the top level, different playing players, you know, throw their discs on. Like if you've seen Avery Jenkins throw, he's, he's pretty high up on his chest throwing and uh, you know, other players much lower um, when I'm throwing distance, I'm definitely lower than that. Um, it, it depends on your specific body geometry, you know, what feels right for you because everybody's, you know, shaped differently and is going to have inherently different form. But I, I can't say that there's one one reach back or pull through that is ideal. But I can say that you should pick one pull or reach back that works for you and don't change it. Try to keep that same pull and reach back and use it as much as possible so that it's it's more muscle memory. You're, you're changing your throw less. If you're throwing different reach backs, which I've, I'm, I'm guilty of, but I also know that, you know, the less you change your form and the more constant your movement is, the more consistent and the more muscle memory you're going to have on that movement um, in the long run. Yeah, that makes sense. Find what works for you, what feels the most comfortable, and just drill it, drill it, drill it. Are there any drills that you would recommend doing in the field or any drills that you felt worked absolutely so much better than some other ones you've tried in the past? Yeah, I like going out to the field, um, picking a target, putting my bag out there or something and just throwing all my discs at it. Um, try to, try to throw them, you know, like I said, on the same pull through coach, I've been working with coach Chris Taylor. He's been helping out some, some pros on tour. And uh, that's, that's a real big thing that he suggests as well. And if you look at um, Paul Macbeth, he uses a very consistent um, throw and reach back on across the board on his shots. I mean, you can look at him throwing a 300 foot shot or a 400 foot shot. And it looks like the same throw a lot of the time. He's not changing a whole lot. And that's, that boils down to consistency and, and muscle memory. So, um, if I can say something, it's get the reps in and, and dial in what your pullback and what your throw needs to be and use that the majority of the time. There's going to be cases where you got to throw a crazy and throw at a weird angle. Um, the less that you're changing your throw and the angle of your throw, the more consistent your movement's going to be. So use the disc to do the work instead of change up your throw to do the work because much at the end of the day what that comes down to a lot of the time yeah that makes sense so i feel like just to kind of recap what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes i feel like some of the most important things to improving your distance and just overall improving your throw in general is you want to make sure you're bracing correctly spinning kind of on that heel not necessarily your toes and making sure that momentum is going through your front leg you want to make sure you're getting spin on the disc and you're really getting that whip effect with it. And then really the third one is you just have to find almost what's most comfortable for you and just 
rep it until it makes sense and until you can get one and two in that list to be competent and improve and eventually three will kind of find its way also yeah exactly and you know when you're when you move into the stage of playing tournaments there's there's pressure and adrenaline on the line and your body's going to default into the mode that it knows and that it has you know the muscle memory and the reps in so if you if you spend your time changing your form all the time more so than you spend practicing one consistent type of throw you're going to default to an erratic throw that you haven't practiced as much you know when when it boils down to it and the money's on the line because you know that's where you're you don't have the muscle memory of a consistent throw so you've got to practice um practice how you play yeah a lot of time too at a higher level sense would you recommend and that's also you know that is kind of a higher level thing because when i was novice and stuff i had to develop my throw everybody does because at that level when you're starting out you probably don't have impeccable form there's a lot that you have to work on so um it's a balance definitely yeah so then going i guess more off of that adrenaline rush i think something that happens to a lot of newer players and it definitely still happens to pros as well as the the term the grip lock happens and they just absolutely yank on the disc overturn it it's a cut roller you'll definitely see this at your local c tier multiple times <laughs> around yeah so, a is grip lock real like is that actually something real or is it just you know a bad grip throw lock's real? an excuse yeah. and grip so it's real so it like, can come in different forms <laughs> yeah like what is it and how do you fix it you've got grip locks for putts you've got grip locks for drives you've got slips that turn into grip locks I'll hear people call the putting grip lock a yip where you just can't release mm-hmm. the disc. And uh, I've done it before on 10-foot putts and airball the basket. Uh, it's real. And uh, you wouldn't do it practicing when there's not pressure on the line. It, it really does come down to some kind of a mental block that you have to get over. Um, same thing with drives. It can happen on drives. And, uh, you know, then sometimes I've had this happen. And I've, I've, I was playing the – Brent Hambrick Memorial in Ohio when it was it was either an A tier or an NT, and I think I had Nico Castro, Jeremy Colling on my card, and I go to tee off and I slip, and I'm trying to hang on to the disc and I can't, oh, and I release no. it behind me, and no. the disc travels 100 feet behind the tee pad, and I just look at my card, and we just all burst out laughing. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i wasn't even embarrassed it was just yeah. like what the heck just happened but uh yeah i mean it happens it wasn't wow. a mental thing that was just like a failed execution of holding on to the disc but uh, you know grip lock's a grip lock yeah yeah i feel like earlier on in my game i felt it a lot more driving lately i feel like it's just it's putting is where i feel it the most like sure i'll yeah. have a bad drive maybe it'll be more the early release grip lock instead of the uh just absolutely yank cut roller one but the putting one where it feels like a good putt and you just somehow spin completely around the basket and uh i can't exactly remember which european girl it is um innova she's the one who spilt the tea on the ladies not uh wanting to play waco (laughs) or something like that difficult where she just puts Uh that from a 10 footer and you're like oh wow 
that actually happens to some of the best in the world. Also, it's not just a me thing. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's, that's very interesting. Well, okay. So I just got the alert. We've got about 10 minutes left. So another point that I kind of want to hit on is, you know, setting that distance world record. Can you just kind of take me through the that moment of it happening, the preparation, and then it happening and your immediate thoughts once it was confirmed? Yeah. So I've, I mean, I've thrown distance, I would consider most of my life since I was like eight, nine years old. And it would, it was something that originally started out as we would, my dad would take me over to this fitness complex, just basically a field with soccer fields and everything, football fields that were combined. So we had a lot of throwing area, but he'd take me there every winter when, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of tournaments going on and where I could, you know, play with my form without, you know, tweaking it too bad during tournament season, which wasn't a big issue when I was young, but as I got older and started playing, you know, advancing pro something that I didn't really want to do mid season, but we would go there every winter and I'd work on my form. And when I was a kid, I'd throw on like 90 feet every winter. It was crazy. Just going out there consistently. It would be two to three times a week. You'd want, you want to rest day in between throwing hard. And uh, I'd work on my form and there was always noticeable improvement over that three, four month period. So I worked up, I ended up setting all the junior distance records overall men's world record at 16 years old. And at that time, um, me and Simon Lazat were pretty much battling throwing distance. Um, he ended up breaking that record that I set 836 feet uh, a couple years later. And um, we would, we'd throw at distance competitions um, throughout the year, neck and neck. Um, then, then on the year, I ended up setting it at 1,108 feet. We just had this crazy day. I mean, it was blown on 30 to 50 miles an hour throughout the day. And um, it was one of those things where I have thrown in the desert for years. I started going out there when I was 13. And it is – a lot of people like to discredit the wind, which there's no doubt that it helped it fly 1,108 feet. But it's also extremely difficult to throw in wind, as most players know. And when you're trying to hit a line, you know – I mean, hit a 600-foot line perfectly in 20 miles an hour wind. Yeah, how many throws does it take to do that? It's very difficult to do. But uh, I, I, nobody thought anybody was going to get a throw off that day that was going to be anything because they just fall out of the sky generally. In that and, and when I got this shot off, I just hit – I threw it as hard as I could. I hit the angle, and it just took off. And it, it had the perfect angle, and it just – it looked like a – a speck of salt falling out of the air when it came down. I mean, it was just, I was legitimately like afraid to hear the number when they, when they shot it, it was crazy. And everybody knew that it was gone, but uh, nobody would have guessed it went that far. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was definitely like an awe moment. It was what, so cool. What disc was it? That was a boss. Nice. In awesome. A, a boss. Yeah. Awesome. So, I know we're almost out of time, but when when it was flying, when it landed, what did you think it was? What what do you think the distance was? I mean, the thought of a thousand foot was just incomprehensible, you know. Yeah. So that was like it was like a glitch. It was like there's no way it went a thousand, but I think it just went a thousand feet, and it didn't just go a thousand feet; it went eleven hundred yeah. feet. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. it was crazy. Yeah. Wow, that is absolutely insane. It took a while for that to set in, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I will be the first one to admit that the wind helped me, but will that throw be duplicated 
okay to don't know because one the conditions were just we didn't plan on having wind like that and another thing about that day is we only had two other throwers have a further throw that day than any other day in the whole competition with minimal winds so getting a throw off with that much wind was harder for most of the throwers than getting a throw off in minimal winds because mm. 15 throws a day it's not like you get as many shots as you want you get three sets of five and you get like a five minute window like i can't remember exactly what is off the top of my head so you know even if you're just going out in the field and you had you know 15 throws it's hard to get the perfect one but i connected with the perfect throw in the perfect conditions and had the perfect flight and 1108 feet was the result that is awesome. That is so cool to hear. And and I mean, being in, in the middle of Kansas and Wichita, uh, yeah, the wind is an issue. It feels weird to play without the wind and you hit the nail on the head. Try hitting a 600 foot line with 20 mile per hour wind and then just go ahead and double that and the wind. So cool. Such an amazing story. David, thank you for coming on, taking your time out of your evening, sitting down, talking with me and the chain clankers. Uh, where can people continue to connect with you, learn more about your disc golf journey? Yeah, social media. I'm on Instagram. Um, follow me there. I hope to be getting out in some bigger events this year, doing some more clinics. Um, did a few with Double G last year. They went pretty well. So looking forward to getting back out there. I really made a little emergence back into the game in 2022. So looking forward to getting out there more this year in 2023. Yeah, man. I'm super excited to see you back out there. I know watching you on coverage is going to be a ton of fun if we get the opportunity to do so. Can't thank you enough for coming on and thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully this helped and you will be able to become a more powerful, accurate, further throwing disc golfer after this episode. And we will see you guys next week. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix.